0: Welcome to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Today, we'll talk to the organizers of the 44th Annual Marian Thompson Wright Lecture Series as part of Black History Month.
1: For me, this is really about, you know, providing visibility and recognition to the ethnic groups, the diverse ethnic groups that exist across Black communities, but also it is about sort of Returning to the silence, right, And, and giving folks safe
2: space to talk them through.
0: WBGO's John Kalish has the story of artist Jay Golding.
2: Golding came to the U.S. in 1997 at the age of seven. His speech made it obvious that he came from Jamaica.
0: And I'll chat with acclaimed playwright Kate Hamill about her new adaptation of The Scarlet Letter running through February 25th at Two River Theatre.
3: If you've done something that you're really ashamed of, how do you find forgiveness?
0: All this coming up today on the WBGO Journal. It's that time of year again, an important time. The 44th Annual Marian Thompson Wright Lecture Series, The Power of Black Voices, Afro-Latin Identities, in the Americas. February 17th, from 9.30 in the morning to 3.30 in the afternoon on the campus of Rutgers-Newark at the Paul Robeson Campus Center. And joining us to talk about this special event, two people that you've heard from before here on the WBGO Journal, Dr. Jack Chen, the Director of the Clement Price Institute on Ethnicity, Culture, and the Modern Experience at Rutgers-Newark. Jack, always great to see you. Great to be here, Doug. And also joining us is Dr. Lacey Hunter, the Associate Professor of Professional Practice and Associate Director of the Price Institute at Rutgers-Newark. Lacey, great to see you as always.
1: Good to see you too.
0: This is indeed a difficult topic this year, the theme. And so, Jack, as we talk about racism in any culture or colonialism, we know that it's a topic that some people might go, "Eh, I I don't know if I, I, I want to hear more, but it's so important that the Price Institute has felt that this theme is going. And I know Lacey has put together a fabulous lineup, but Jack, first for you, why the theme?
4: Well, uh, in many ways, it's also a key issue for our whole culture today, not just in the U.S., but globally. We see the fractioning that's going on, the manipulation that's going on. And in many ways, unless we come to terms with how these divisions happen within Uh, our communities, uh, we're prey to being manipulated. So that's one answer. Um, But I think the deeper answer is that for ourselves, coming from these communities in which we're trying to operate within a representative democracy and to represent our own cultures and peoples, it's very important for us to acknowledge the faux diversity of those cultures and how the different kinds of colonialisms that have impacted Asians African-Americans, especially indigenous peoples, have really impacted us differently. And therefore, in the Americas, it's really complicated because we're talking about, of course, Spanish colonialism. We're talking about um, French colonialism. We're talking about Portuguese colonialism. We're talking about really how the Dutch and the British also impacted within this kind of now a largely Anglo-American dominated culture. So within all that, we have indigenous peoples also who are really pushing for freedom all along. So in many ways, this play between colonialism and freedom is kind of a key theme that we're tackling here. And in many ways, this issue of how Afro-Latin Americans can begin to represent themselves, but also deal with the racism and colorism that has been happening within that culture. But that's true for any culture that You know, certainly I come from and any culture I've studied as well.
0: Lacey, before we talk about the the wonderful lineup of guest speakers you have, I want to get your thoughts on this too when it comes to the theme. To ignore certain things that we should be talking about is not good. And the Price Institute has always brought to the forefront issues that need scholarly looks at these type of issues. Tell us about the theme for you.
1: Um, You know, for me, this is, um, I call these cultural silences, um, you know, ways in which we've learned just not to speak about things that are uncomfortable, things that force us to take accountability for our own, you know, harmful, intentionally or unintentionally, um, actions. And for me, this is really about, you know, providing visibility and recognition to the ethnic groups, the diverse ethnic groups that exist across Black communities, but also it is about sort of returning to the silence, right? And and giving folks safe space to talk them through. Um, And there's no better time than now. Um, so we're we're hoping that although the topic is touchy, um, in large part because of what Jack has said that you know we've been taught m- many of us, if not all of us, have been taught you know we're all just one you know people within our groups that we all have some degree of mixture. Uh, and so the disparaging things we might say to the people with the wrong mixture or the um, mixture that's deemed as lower or of less value, um, they're supposed to take that on as an endearment um, or take that on as friendly gesture or joking. Um, but those things have really harmful and long term effects and they have ripples that reach beyond, you know, our households and our communities and they do show up everywhere in our cultures. So. In a lot of ways, this is about pointing some of those things out, giving people the tools and the language to understand them, to talk about them in their own spaces, and then letting them hopefully um, get out there in their spheres of influence um, and generate good, restorative conversations.
0: Yeah, and it's important that the Marian Thompson Wright Lecture series, picks wonderful speakers who can provide different perspectives uh, through the years, and that will be the case again this year. Jack, also it's a time where I think more and more people are checking out documentaries and and craving information about topics like racism that don't get discussed enough in mainstream media. Do you agree with that?
4: I do, Doug. And I think part of why that's happening is that really, for the first time in a significant way, we've got – people who are coming from these communities, especially African-Americans and uh, Africans from different parts of the diaspora, starting to be in positions in which they can make their own documentaries and telling their stories from a very fresh point of view, which is not dominated by some kind of um, Anglo-American narrator who is the expert and and kind of telling it for them. Uh, So that's really powerful. Uh, And uh, I think because we're now all able to kind of do these stories and do oral histories and and do the filming, even from our cameras, uh, there's a much more democratic uh, storytelling process happening. And that's certainly true with our speakers who are now getting into positions of being able to get Uh, degrees in universities and and get the positions in which they have a form of security in which they can more freely tell those stories as well. That's not always been possible in this country, but it's getting to be more and more possible because of the struggles of folks of color who have been really, um, despite a lot of the attitudes of the dominant university, still getting through and getting supported by those who have gotten through before them.
0: What a great point that you, you need that, almost that status. Right. To, to become the scholar that that people can say, oh, yeah, well, I need to listen to this person. That, that's a great point. So let's start off with maybe a, a couple of the speakers, Lacey, that you're excited about for this event on February 17th.
1: Um, well, I'm excited about all of them, but I will <laughs> I'll start with uh, Nodia Mena, who is a cultural ambassador, a linguist, um, educator uh, of Garifuna descent. Um, the Garifuna people are they are the descendants of West African enslaved communities originally, um, you know, held in the lesser Antilles, so the eastern Caribbean, those smaller islands, uh, places like St. Vincent. Um, over generations of, you know, contestation between the British and these communities Um, the British realized we cannot control these people. These islands are too small. Um, We need to get the rebellious folks out and disperse them. So it's actually sort of a diaspora or a spreading of people within a diaspora. Um, The Garifuna then were uh, transported by force um, into Central America uh, and some parts of South America. And they have now formed communities or over the next several generations, they form communities with the indigenous nations living throughout Central and South America. And so the culture and the language that they have formed or forged, rather, um, is not Spanish. Um, it is definitely not English, um, but it's certainly not a strictly um, Native American, if you will, language either. It is um, this sort of beautiful conglomerate that blends uh, the the indigenous cultures of the Americas with West African cultures as they've been transplanted through the Caribbean. Um, And so Nodia is going to help us think about what it means to be of Afro-Latin descent Um, in a way that we've never been encouraged to do that before. Uh, And she's bringing along a special guest, uh, a a cultural band called uh, Bodoma. Um, They are fantastic. And what's wonderful about them is that this will allow our audience a means of seeing how history is passed along in Afro-Indigenous groups, um, rather than thinking about the traditional sort of we write things down in books and it's preserved in someone's papers. And then when they die, you know, a historian comes along and reads those papers and helps us understand what happens. Um, this will be living history, um, as it is told as it is received. And I think that's going to be a really beautiful part of the program. Um, and then I'm also really excited about Tanya Hernandez. Um, she is a comparative race law analyst, Um, She's brilliant. She's a wonderful storyteller. And she's going to help us dissect those things that we are really uncomfortable talking about, right? Those things that kind of lay dormant in the family, right? That maybe your African heritage one generation removed or your African heritage that's really immediate that you're taught not to discuss or You're taught to discuss it in ways that are uh, that indicate it's lesser than, but as long as you're of a certain complexion, um, then no one will know. So she's really going to help us think through bias um, in ways that, again, we've not been encouraged to do, particularly if you're from the Americas.
0: Jack, I know there's a couple other speakers that you want to touch upon.
4: Dr. Ariana Curtis is the first. Latinx curator at the Smithsonian Institution. You know, of course, we know our friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Lonnie Bunch, who's from, who's from nearby Belleville, New Jersey. Uh, we count that as Newark, right? Uh, Lonnie is, of course, the secretary now of the Smithsonian, the very first African-American secretary, but he also was instrumental in creating the National Museum of African-American Art and History and Culture. So that museum and now the Smithsonian at large under his leadership have really taken a kind of pioneering role. Uh, we talk about the kind of Anglo uh, pioneers, the rugged pioneers who are crossing the frontier. Well, we're not talking about that kind of colonial domination. We're talking about a world-leading uh, scholar and uh, who is really now taking museums in a whole different direction. And Ariana Curtis is very much a part of that larger vision and new type of museology that's happening. Um, The other person, an example of how distinguished um, so many scholars have really struggled to become is uh, Dr. Lorja Garcia-Pena, who uh, has come through uh, a variety of local institutions. uh, And while she was in Atlanta, uh, she was grappling with, of course, the uh, local state decision to basically ban undocumented students from the public universities. Um, This, of course, is not something we do in New Jersey or New York or in the region, but it's part of the kind of manipulation that's been going on, as I was referring to earlier, that's dividing us very badly against uh, those who have our citizenship papers, who are born on American soil, versus those so-called dangerous foreigners who are invading our country. So that's part of that kind of manipulation and and divide-and-conquer approach. But what Dr. Garcia-Pena did is that she created, with the students and with other faculty, what's called a Freedom University. To both of you,
0: congratulations on yet another wonderful lineup and a very interesting topic that people need to find more out about. Thanks again.
1: Thank you, Doug.
0: Thank you.
4: Everybody, please come.
1: Yes, we'll look forward to seeing you.
0: You can see the entire interview with Dr. Jack Chen and Dr. Lacey Hunter on the WBGO Facebook page. This week, we're going to introduce you to an artist named Jay Golding, whose paintings are currently featured in two exhibits, one in New Brunswick and another in South Orange, where he lives. Golding is 34 and came to New Jersey from Jamaica when he was a young boy. Here's WBGO's John Kalish.
2: If you were to meet Jay Golding on the street, you'd no doubt describe him as a black man. But Golding says he does not identify as black. He calls himself an autochthon, a term that refers to an indigenous inhabitant of a country.
5: I'm a Maroon descendant from Jamaica. You have Maroons in Haiti, Suriname, different places. The Maroons were unruly. You can't tame them. In Jamaica, they kind of pioneered that guerrilla warfare tactic where they would blend in and camouflage themselves with the elements and they would sometimes raid the plantations for weapons and to free slaves and they were just very stealthy about it.
2: Golden came to the U.S. in 1997 at the age of seven. His speech made it obvious that he came from Jamaica.
5: I had a heavy accent so I stood out when I first went to school here but all the students loved it like No one picked on me for my accent everyone was kind of more intrigued with me
2: his mother encouraged him to lose that jamaican accent she sent him to the chad school in newark a private elementary school that was started by college students who were part of the black power movement children at the chad school addressed their teachers as brother or sister the school closed in 2005. Golding didn't know what he wanted to do when he went to college, but while he was enrolled at Kane University, he took a drawing course that proved to be pivotal.
5: That class was a class that really made me see that, yeah, I can do this. It made me realize that what was missing from my skill set was certain fundamentals in art, like the way light and shadows work. And the professor really broke that down in a way that I could retain the information and understand it. And then everything started to click from there.
2: The instructor for that course was Mark Romanoski, a professional illustrator whose clients include a major comic book publisher and a huge movie studio. Romanoski hasn't been in touch with Golding for more than 10 years, but after looking at images of Golding's paintings online, he had high praise for his former student. You know, I always say to my students every year, one of the greatest compliments for me would to have one of my students come back and someday teach me something. And I think Jay is well on his way of doing that. I think Jay has worked really hard to create some great works of art. Jay Golding is a figurative painter. Many of the people in his paintings are wearing masks. Often Golding paints symbols on the masks or the bodies of the people in his paintings.
5: Sometimes there's, beforehand research into the mask that I do to find out what the mask is used for whether it's for fertility reasons but then there are other times where I feel really drawn to the mask and I just create an image without knowing what that mask is about first and then later on I might find that the mask actually kind of already aligns with the thought so there's like a marriage that happens between intuition and planning.
2: During the pandemic, Golding spent more than a year outside the country traveling to Mexico, Belize, and Jamaica. The trip, he says, has shaped his recent work. His style is a blend of realism and expressionism that shows off a palette of vibrant colors.
0: For me, as a curator that is particularly looking at African, Caribbean, and African-American artists, color is their signature. They are not timid about it, and they shouldn't
2: be. Curator Atem Annette Otan selected one of Jay Golding's paintings for an exhibit on contemporary African spirituality.
0: I think that every artist is always trying to tell a story. In his work, I see stories that are historical, stories that are contemporary. I want to document people, but I also want to document a particular moment and then reinterpret that moment
2: on canvas. The Contemporary African Spirituality Show will be up through April 7th at the Herb and Millie Iris Gallery in the South Orange Performing Arts Center. There are three Jay Golden paintings currently on display in a group show at New Brunswick's Above Arts Studio. For the WBGO Journal, I'm John Kalish.
0: The world premiere of Kate Hamill's The Scarlet Letter runs at Two River Theater in Red Bank through February 25th. Hamill is best known for adaptations of classic novels and in 2017 was named by the Wall Street Journal the Playwright of the Year. And joining us now on the WBGO Journal is playwright and actor Kate Hamill. Kate, great to see you.
3: Hi, so pleased to be here.
0: The Scarlet Letter.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Remember the first time you read that?
3: You know, I do remember the first time I read that i um I had I was assigned it in high school and I went to a very conservative, pretty much abstinence only education high school. So when I tell you, I did not understand what the book was about. I was a bit of a sheltered teenager. I had no idea what was happening in the book the first time. I read it, so I remember reading it the first time, but rereading it with an eye towards adapting it. Obviously, I was a little bit less sheltered.
0: (laughs) Most of us have read or seen some films or movies, The Scarlet Letter. Hester Prynne, the classic tale of courage, dares to strive for a better life for her and her daughter. Now, Kate, you are best known for taking these wonderful works and turning them into magical adaptations. The Scarlet Letter. Why did you want to do an adaptation of The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne?
3: Well, I was really, in general, I'm really interested in... Uh, Creating new classical works for the stage because I feel like these classics are cultural touchstones for us. Um, If I say to you, oh, so-and-so is a bit of a Dracula, you have a real picture in your mind of who that is. They're a common cultural language for us. We do teach them in our schools. Um, So I think that they're really powerful on stage to re-examine what a hero or a heroine's journey is and what those stories can mean for us today as opposed to a novel which once written the reader may change but the the novel itself does not change a work of theater should always be a sort of ephemeral thing that is changing and meeting the moment so I've done a bunch of classics but I was especially interested in doing the scarlet letter um, because I was interested in unpacking the sort of cultural legacy we have in America of misogyny and uh, a fear of women's sexuality and a fear a, a want to control women's bodies um, with the sort of moral panic that a woman's body that belongs only unto herself is dangerous to the rest of the society. And I think that is something that we have inherited very deeply in our structures from the Puritans. And on a broader school scale. I was really interested in unpacking a story about if you've done something that you're really ashamed of, um, how do you find forgiveness? And I think another thing, um, not only from yourself or from whatever higher power you may believe in, but from your society. And I think another thing that we've inherited from the Puritans is, uh, we don't have great paths to redemption in our society. If you've done something bad that cult, you know, everyone's shaming you for. Sometimes, rightly, I don't know that there are a lot of ways for you to re-enter and be reintegrated and be rehabilitated. Um, so, this play starts uh, with um, an act of original sin, which you would think would be that Hester uh, Hester having a child out of wedlock, but it's actually her society's violent response to her doing that, to her having a child out of wedlock, that, that every character in the play, save little Pearl, uh, who is the product of that um, illicit affair, Every character in the play spends the rest of the play dealing with that and how to reconcile with that response. So I thought it was really rich, interesting ground and one that save, you know, The Crucible, um, some newer works. I I think sometimes we have not quite unpacked that. I think we think of the Puritans as them, but really the Puritans influence a lot of the world we live in in America today.
0: Well said, you know, I love your thought process, and the fact that the original was set in Puritan, Boston, Massachusetts, Mm -hmm. I don't want you to give away too much, because, you know, an adaptation, that's part of the fun of it when you go, but what can you tell us about what you bring new to The Scarlet Letter?
3: Uh, well, I always think of adaptation as a collaboration between myself and another author who is sometimes currently dead. Uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, as some people may know, actually wrote um, this book uh, a couple of centuries after the events in the book. So he himself was writing a sort um, an act of fiction two centuries earlier uh, because his own ancestor was set um. Uh, was involved in the prosecution of the Salem witch trials, and he carried around a lot of guilt about that. So this the specter of the Salem witch trials really ha- uh, really haunts that book. And so I wanted to bring out more of that. I I will say, if you know the Scarlet Letter, you will see some things that are familiar. If you have no relationship with the Scarlet Letter, you can come and just see this as a totally different piece and get. You're going to understand everything, but there are certainly surprises. Um, the language is quite different. Uh, Hawthorne used a lot of these and thous, it's this very heightened language, and I wanted to make it um, quite a bit more accessible to us. So that's one example, and I'll say there's a character in this play who is basically not in the novel at all, but um. It's a character, Goody Hibbins, uh, who is the governor's wife. She is very briefly mentioned in the novel, but I made her a central character because I think it's very true of misogyny and violence against women in the world that it is also perpetuated by women against women. So we have this amazing actress, Mary Bacon, playing this character who is not in the novel at all. Um, Another thing that's a bit of a surprise that I think is really wonderful, here at Two River. Uh, so the challenge of staging this play is, of course, a central character in this play is Pearl, who is a four-year-old girl. It is, I can't tell you how difficult it would be to use an actual four-year-old mm-hmm. on stage with this amount of language. You think of your average four-year-old. But I also wanted um a child who was the Puritans would have found a child of an illicit marriage inherently sinful or suspect there was something inherently a little bit creepy about them it was almost there was something in of the devil in them and I was thinking you know how can how can you do this with a real child we in modern society we tend to project innocence on children because of course we do and uh I became very very interested in using a puppet because puppets we uh are both inherently, cute and we like them, but they're a little creepy and a little bit otherworldly, a little bit alive, a little bit dead. And fortunately, Shelley Butler, who's the director of this piece, was also very much on uh, board with this idea. And even more fortunately, Two River Theatre, this is the new artistic director, Justin Waldman's first season. They were on board with this idea, and it really takes a wonderful super special theater to support this because puppets sort of are their own, come with their own entourage. They do require an investment by a theater in this creative idea. And I'm so appreciative of Justin and Two River that they were all in on creating what has been like a really magical puppet experience. And we have this wonderful puppeteer, Nikki, who is the actor who plays Pearl and also puppets Pearl. And it's it's really feat.
2: That's
0: fascinating. Just another reason why you want to go to Two River Theater to see Kate Hamill's The Scarlet Letter. Once again, that's running February 3rd through February 24th. You you mentioned Mary. Can you talk about some of the other cast members uh, briefly?
3: Totally. Uh, we have such a fantastic cast. Um, as I said, there's Mary and Nikki, um, Amelia Pedlow, who's playing Hester Prynne. This is actually the third world premiere I've done with Amelia in a, a role. She's one of my favorite collaborators, just an amazing actor and um, human being. Um, Keshav Mudliar is playing uh, Arthur Dimsdale. He's heartbreaking and wonderful and uh, really gives you a glimpse into this very tortured man. Kevin Isola is playing Roger Chillingworth, and he is wonderful and mercurial and funny and scary. And it's just been a, they, it is a, it's, and um, Trini uh, Sandoval is playing Governor Hippens, who is ostensibly the most powerful man in the colony, but actually is is locked in a bit of a power struggle with his wife. And Trini is always, uh, who I've worked with before as well, is so funny and um, deep and such a master of this heightened language. And it's just like the loveliest group of people on a play that does deal with some serious themes. You want people who are very game and, um, take uh are able to also have fun and they are just delightful it's been really great especially with world premieres i'm really shaping the role around the actor we cast and we got very lucky in terms of all these people they're really wonderful
0: you can see my entire interview with kate hamill on the wbgo facebook page Thanks for listening to the WBGO Journal. I'm Doug Doyle. Join us next Saturday morning at 5.30 for another edition of the award-winning WBGO Journal. In the meantime, stay tuned to the world's greatest jazz and blues station, WBGO and WBGO.org.